Hey, this is Ertai from the Sightless Farm podcast. We are currently on a break, and while I'm recording the next batch of episodes, I will be publishing a few episodes from a similar but cancelled podcast called A Touch of Gaming. It is co-hosted by Ryan Peach and Brian Counter. Enjoy the episode. A Touch of Gaming, December 2015, Teaching and Learning Games. Across the virtual tabletop for me is host Brian Counter. Hola. And in this edition of A Touch of Gaming, we will be talking about the presentation and demonstration of games. On YouTube, there is a video that someone has done about the uh, what they consider to be the, the five major steps of introducing and teaching a game. Uh, they broke it down into the objectives, like what you're doing to win the game, the game components, game playthrough, so what you're doing step-by-step uh, step, uh, during your turn, a little bit more in-depth about what you can do with each of your choices, and then at the end, some strategy tips if they have any. What are your thoughts on that, Brian? Uh, that sounds about right. Whenever I learn a new game, I want to first know what the basic theming is, if there is any. I want to know what the objective is. How do you win in uh, succinct things, not not some long, you know, Asimovian verbose thing. I want to know how do I win. Uh, it doesn't have to be all cold, but I want it to be more efficient than lengthy because you know, then you can fl- fill in the flavor later. Uh, I do want to know about the game components. Uh, I do want to know the general idea of a turn structure, and then uh, and then you just take it from there. Um, also, as a partially sighted person. I am, my first thing is, how much contrast or lack thereof is there? Because if there's a lot of lack of contrast, people will speak up and say, yeah, I'm not sure Brian can play this, and they're really cool about that. I I certainly want to know that right off the get-go is, did someone poorly design uh, another graphical design nightmare where they have, you know, light blue on white or light brown on darker brown, those kinds of things? That's That's a, a deal killer. Once we get past that... I just want to know how do you play, how do you win, and a basic flavor, mini flavor, of what the game is about. And then you can expand upon that and add flavor to it and and kitsch and all that kind of good stuff later. I'm largely the same. Theme matters quite a lot to me. Uh, I may, may be willing to play a game based on a theme that I'm interested in that maybe isn't the most solid on mechanisms, that still matters to me. And where I differ a little bit, where I rely on sighted assistance to play uh, most of my games, what I want to know right up front are about the mechanisms. And the, the, the mechanisms of a game are really the, the means by which the player interacts with the game and with the other players. Um, over time, I have had to sort of develop a method to determining whether uh, certain mechanisms are going to work for me or not. And it ultimately comes down to a question of, okay, if these are the way the games are played, these are the way I interact with the players and with the game, can these, these, these mechanisms be adjusted in some way so that I can do more for myself 
and not be at a disadvantage when compared to the other players. And as a result, I have determined over time that certain mechanisms work for me, like pretty much intuitively. Others do not. Some just need an adjustment of the way that those mechanisms are are handled, like the procedure of gameplay. Some of them, uh, kind of the, the last hope, last resort, is, is using a house rule to actually modify a mechanism into something that I would consider more or less achieves the same thing, but is more accessible to me where I'm getting sighted assistance. Uh, beyond that, it is very much the same. Um, I do want to know uh, how how you get to the end, uh, where what the winning is. What am I going to do with my choices to get there? Now, when it comes to two components, um, one thing that tends to not be covered in the rules um, or in gameplay videos that you may encounter or if you're being taught a game is that the components or... Um, Things like the player boards or the game board would be explained. Um, so this is something I, I definitely need to know, uh, not necessarily before we get to sit down to a game, but if the theme is attractive, if the mechanisms seem to be friendly to me, I'm going to want to get my hands on the bits uh, to know what I'm interacting with. And barring that, when you're talking about the layouts of a player board or a game board, I need these explained. And it doesn't mean that I'll ever be able to physically interact with these these parts of the game, uh, just like with the way a card is laid out, sometimes referred to in the rulebook as the anatomy of a card. But once I know how these things are arranged, then when it comes around to teaching a game, which we will talk about a little bit later in the show, then I can explain these things to other players and have us all end up on the same page where they understand what's going on, and then we can just get down to playing the game. Uh, that video that I mentioned, there will be a link to it in the show notes, uh, so you can grab that and, and listen to it for yourself and decide if uh, that's the way you think you'd want to ha- approach uh, a new game that you're sitting down to play for the first time that's being taught to you. Yeah, I would, I would just add, uh, believe it or not, I don't want strategy tips. I hate them. Um, That's just a personal thing. My joy out of playing a game is not winning or losing. It's just interacting with friends, but exploring and learning. Now, if you're all competitive, I begrudge you nothing. It doesn't mean I would necessarily want to play with you, but still, (laughs) it's a personal taste thing. I I get my joy out of exploring a game and figuring it out for myself, and I avoid strategy tips. If other people like them, hey, go for it. Um, I think the idea of strategy tips, at least for them and maybe for me, is the it's, it's simply uh, the idea that you may be seating one or more players down at the table who are not familiar with the concepts the game is based on. There are mechanisms that they've maybe never seen before. So when it comes down to gameplay experience, for myself, I've, I'm a grizzled veteran here. I've got years and years of gameplay experience. So I don't necessarily want... As with you, I don't want those tips, but um, if I were going back through the years to uh, my earlier gameplay and I was sitting down with some experienced players, um, I might want 
at least one or two tips about how to consider my strategic options because my brain is it would not yet have been wired to think in the ways that, that you may want to think in order to do well in playing games like that. So that's where I would see experience uh, feeding into that. Uh, but it, uh, it, but yes, the more experienced players are, the less they want to be told how they should play their way through the game. Sure, I, I guess I guess I take back a little bit of what I said. Um, if this these are strategy tips, as in you know, for newer players. Well, you know, further on down the line, this is going to matter, so don't ignore this or that. You know, those kinds of very basic tips are ones that I could see very useful to newer players as they are interspersed with more experienced players. I was referring to the strategy tips of someone who says, you know, oh, in Puerto Rico, you got to do the corn strategy or the war strategy, and that's how you win, and that's it. I, I don't like stuff like that. Would, would it be fair to say that you dislike... Um, games that have a solution, one yes. or, or or two like ultimate paths. Yes, I dislike. I grow to dislike games with a dominant strategy. Although there are exceptions, and again, this goes way back. This goes back very much to personal taste and experiences. Uh, but if they, I, I have grown to really uh, be discouraged by playing math puzzle games, as I refer to them, where. You know, whoever's the most math efficient wins or whoever thinks about all the possibilities and then they can win. That is a, a snooze fest to me. And I just grow, I've grown to dislike those. So yeah, yeah, no, no, uh, perfect knowledge games. They just bore the crud out of me. Uh, so yeah. Mm. <clears throat> well, if by perfect knowledge you mean games that have uh, no random elements and you can see everything, then I'd have to say, for the most part, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that. Some of them I'm okay with because of the theme. Some of them I'm not because of the theme. Uh, that's a situation where theme might not be enough because... Um, I feel that, as as it sounds like you do, that playing those games is like playing your way through a puzzle, like a like a math exercise mm-hmm. where there's only one endpoint, and once someone has figured out what that that absolute endpoint is, the the correct product for me. Um, I just wouldn't have any desire to play that game anymore because then it would really become a race to see who around the table can get to that that absolute best strategy first. Sure, and I have friends who enjoy these types of games. I begrudge them nothing. It's just, again, that's just a personal taste thing. It's just, I, I like, I am the self-described lover of randomness to a, within a reasonable limit, and uh, so it's a personal taste thing. Are there are there any games that you've experienced where you didn't think that there was an ultimate strategy and then you discovered there was, or or something where there's a strategy that just completely breaks the game for you, and at that point you just had to stop playing it? Well, again, that depends on the gaming group and how you interact. I had won, oh my gosh, I had won like 20 games in a row of Stone Age, and my friends just refused to play it with me anymore. And it wasn't, I wasn't being cocky or anything, but there's a way, and I'm not going to reveal what that way is here, but there's a way that is very beneficial to play Stone Age. And then once I actually specifically told them how to do this, they still didn't beat me for the next game, and then they wound up ganging up on me and finally beating me, and they all, like, high-fived each other. <laughs> so, uh, but it still didn't break the game for me. In fact, I just played that the other day using my quote-unquote good strategy, and I got hosed. So it's it's not always 
a way to win. It's just a way that is helpful to win. And unless it's a you know binary kind of, you're going to win if you do this and not if you don't, then it won't break a game for me typically. They're on to you, Brian. They know your moves now, and that's and that's actually where I could see that having an ultimate strategy and others knowing about that ultimate strategy means that the game can be kind of a either a race or a, sort of a, a hate block fest where everyone is trying to deny everyone else the thing that would feed into that ultimate strategy. Sure. Um, I I have played Stone Age. It's not a game I would choose to own simply because it just doesn't fit into my my personal tastes for games but a friend of mine has it i played it so i can strike it off the list of games that i've tried um it's it's a nice looking worker placement game um i think it plays up to four or five players something like that Mm um i think it's a good game for um people who are newer to playing games um and for younger persons playing games because uh, there is a little bit of a learning learning some basic mathematics there like when you determine how you get your resources based off the dice rolls right. um you, you got to do some basic division and and for teaching children about basic division good game for that sure it it, it also doesn't have so much depth of complexity that it's something a person just can't understand. And there you're introducing some players maybe to some new mechanisms like the idea of placing a worker on a space and getting something for it, which is the core of so many games these days. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, I don't think I have much more to say about that. Later on in the edition, we will be talking uh, as well about how we approach... Uh, introducing and teaching games to others. Uh, And then we'll be talking about the games that we think um, are are best to be taught and to teach. So uh, if you've got nothing more on your mind, we will move on to the next section. Brian, what do you think? Sounds good. Uh, we're on to the second part of A Touch of Gaming, and we're talking about uh, the teaching and introducing of games to a group, as opposed to having those things being introduced to us. I'll say that um, one thing that I consider when uh, teaching a game is what resources am I going to use to to know the game up front? Am I going to learn the game by having it taught to me by someone else, by an online video, by reading the rule book. And something to keep in mind today, if you're looking at learning a game to teach to others, you've never played it before, um, is that these resources are freely available online. YouTube has loads of great how-to videos for a wide variety of games. They unfortunately don't tend to cover um, things like the, the physical components, though if a game has cards in it, sometimes they will cover how the cards are laid out, and they'll show you on on the video as well. But the rule books, um, exactly like the ones that come in the box, you can get them as PDFs off of the publisher's website, off of Board Game Geek otherwise, um, 
And these these are great resources for for getting into it. Even if you're not the one teaching the game, um, going over the rules or even refreshing the rules if you haven't played for a while is a great idea. And thankfully, these things are available in a free, easy to access resource. One thing that sort of connects to uh, what we were talking about in part one about the the five steps when we're talking about the steps four and five the uh in-depth play choices and game tips uh is that something to consider when delivering a game and rules to other people is to try to avoid giving them everything all at once uh maybe you're sitting down to a game that has a very thick rule book with a lot of different exceptions and considerations and i'll mention descent journeys in the dark the the one verse many uh fantasy themed strategy games here uh, of which there is currently a second edition that plays a little differently but that's a game that has a lot of rules in the base game and extra rules. And if you know the game well and the players don't, it can be very easy to get into the trap of uh, trying to tell them about everything that they should consider when they play the game right up front. My personal preference in a situation like this, and I have to admit, this is a situation where I've been taught rather than the one teaching is that I prefer to ask questions of the person who knows the rules when something comes to my mind and they either know it or they can quickly look it up and then we move on. Um, It's very easy with these more advanced games to get completely swamped by all the niggly little bits that aren't going to necessarily come up in your first play. Yeah, I would have a, a really bad example of what not to do that can, just came to mind. Uh, I always have someone read the rules to me. My kids will read the rules to me before I get into a game and even try and teach it or play it myself. Uh, do not, I repeat, do not in all caps read the rule book at the table and expect others to be wanting to play that game. I had a friend, I love him as I do, uh, Aaron was reading the rules to Terra Mystica at the table which is what I would consider a heavy Euro-style game with lots of moving parts, all kinds of crazy stuff. And he said he had read it before, but he must have briefly read it because we wound up kind of reading through the rule book, taking nearly an hour to do so, and I was overwhelmed. I am a reasonably intelligent person, but I was so overwhelmed with the amount of detail, and I would have learned that game better had we actually just said, okay, well, let's start playing so I can see how these things work. And then once we played, I got all the concepts. But I, I am—I uh, consider myself a pretty laid-back, peacenik type most times. But when he was reading that and I was getting overwhelmed, I wanted to get up and punch him <laughs> because it, we were, it was just crazy. So do not uh, read long rule books at the table. Uh, make sure you have at least a general idea of how the game works. And if not, that's okay. I I really believe that a gaming group should be willing to take that first play and say, we're learning the game, the outcome doesn't matter, and if you have someone who's competitive and AP, analysis paralysis, please don't have them play on that first experience. Uh, So that would be a bad example of how to learn a game. I see this as a two-way problem, though, Brian, uh, in that on the one hand, a lot of rule books are not 
designed to either be really good walkthrough references or um, in-game rules references. They, they tend to try to do both and then end up doing both less than optimally. So it's a situation where you may not want to be read the rules, but unless a player has a lot of experience with a game where they can sort of recompile the rules in their head and sort of deliver it the way it should be if you were reading through a tutorial, then I think you end up being trapped in a situation where you end up with the rule book being read just due to lack of experience. Um, on the other side of this, if you just decide to jump into playing the game, uh, and I've gotten into this both as uh, someone who's been taught and someone who's, who has taught the game, that it's it can be very easy to fall into a, a big ball of yarn and, and sort of get tangled up in knots where you end up going back and forth with, oh yeah, uh, you need to do this or you need to think about this rule now that I remembered it while we're doing it. Sure. Um, and and that's a that that's a, a trap that can lead you into forgetting how things are supposed to be done or where you're you're mis misexplaining the way the game is played. Uh ultimately, um the the best position to be in is either to A have a game in front of you that has a a good rule book in, in in front of you where there there is it is laid out in such a way that you can read it and it is as if you're walking through the game tutorial process. Uh, and some games do this better than others. On the other hand, ideally you you just want to play the game enough that you are experienced enough that you can like basically rearrange the rules in your head to get down to the business of teaching the game, likely in the five step uh process that that we talked about in part one uh as opposed to reading it paragraph by paragraph from the book which as i say some of those books are meant more to be referred to while you're playing the game and not as the 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 tutorial document it should be i'd like to see more games actually have a a two book setup where one book is the the setup and tutorial and the other book is just pure rules reference but uh uh, I might be waiting a long time for something like that, you know, the cost well, of paper and all that. Sure, I think um, and this is a game that may not be good for the the uh, visually, uh, well, for the visually impaired is a challenge, but for people with sounds vision, uh, it's not a good game. Crossmaster Arena, I will give them a lot of credit because they have the rule book and then there's a like, kind of a separate section thing where they will actually take you through step by step. Okay, here's here's how to learn this group of rules, and then they play you through it. And then when you're ready to advance, you have another section of rules, and then they show you those rules and how they work. I think that's excellently done. That's great. Let's assume then that you are introducing a game and you've got a mixed group. Maybe some have played it, maybe some haven't, but you don't have enough experience playing it yourself that... Um, you know the rule book inside and out, that you know the gameplay inside and out. One approach I've taken um, to playing some games that are harder to teach than others, and we will talk about some of these games in more detail in Part 3, um, is something I like to refer to as cooperative learning. And this is where um, I, as a teacher, may start off with explaining things uh the way, way the way the game is played the game objectives 
um, and some of the components, but I may get into a situation where I don't know exactly the way the cards are laid out, or I don't know exactly where components are supposed to go. And this is where um, someone who can quickly thumb through the rules would be given the book and say, okay, these are things that I'm not completely solid on. I know about them, but before I continue, I just want to be clear that these are the way these things are. So this is where uh, you're using the rule book as a reference, the way a lot of them are intended. And you have the person who's best at looking for these things uh, skimming through the book Hopefully the book is laid out in a way that they can find this. They find it. They tell you, like, okay, I remember that now. Um, so we do this thing. And um, when I talk about cooperative uh, learning, uh, I also do uh, cooperative setup. Um, it certainly goes faster if everyone is participating in the shuffling of cards, the placing out of tokens, the handing out of the player bits and stuff like that, as opposed to one person doing all of the work. Oh, of course. Uh, um, and unfortunately, uh, my games are not modified enough yet such that um, many of them I can actually set out and arrange entirely by myself. I honestly think it's it's a better process to familiarize people with the game if you have them helping with the, the, the setup process and the teardown process for that matter. Um, so all of this has a sort of a, a cooperative experience. It introduces them a little bit to the rules and and the components and everything while you're teaching them how to play the game. Then once you actually get to starting to play the game, you're all more or less on the same basic starting point. Um, I will talk about, when I talk about some games that work and don't work, um, I will be talking a little bit about how experience may or may not help in this situation. I have found that some of the games that uh, I have on my shelf that I enjoy playing, no matter how many times I played them, I just can't keep it all straight, uh, no matter what. So these are games that I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable enough to teach to other people, and so I leave up to either others teaching or the cooperative uh, teaching process where we, we all kind of share in the experience. Yeah, I, I agree with the whole cooperative teaching and things, uh, you know, but you have to have somebody take the lead in explaining things. I think that uh, it's rare for someone to forget a rule and then someone look it up and you've been playing the whole game wrong, and unless you're still kind of learning it, if that makes sense. So uh, looking stuff up, we'll take turns doing that, and it usually works out pretty well. Oh, yes. And uh, both as a teacher and a player, this is something to consider. If if you're someone who's serious about winning, is competitive, and <clears throat> hates when something is missed or whatever, um, I think the best attitude you can have going into a new game is right off the first play. Right off the second play in some mm -hmm. cases. Because chances are good you have been doing something wrong at least the first time around, probably the second time around, not necessarily the same thing. There are a few games I played where I got pretty far and realized that I was doing stuff wrong. I blame the person who initially taught the game, but ultimately it's my responsibility to know the rules by reading them. I have no excuse because all the rule books are freely available online. 
Um, I'm all sorted out on those games now, but um, it's just one of those funny things, right? Um, when, when the designers design the games and they work out the rule books, they they think that everything is as intuitive as they they can make it, <laughs> and uh, they think that everyone's just going to understand what they're talking about. Um, once the game gets out in the wild, though, then they realize that, hey wait a minute, not everyone thinks the way I do, or they weren't all in on the playtesting process, exactly. so this stuff isn't intuitive as uh, as uh, I thought it should be. And that's uh, actually where, in some cases, a game will end up in, like, a, a second or third edition, where they've, they've cleaned up the book, they've streamlined the rules, they've made it more intuitive thanks to all of that free feedback they've gotten from game players like you and me. Well, that's assuming it makes it to a second or third edition. You can kill a game with a very poor rule book if the game isn't outstanding. There are games uh, that are developed in countries where English is not the first language. England, or sorry, France, Italy, Germany, Poland. Um, and unfortunately, when those games get translated and brought into the North American or, or worldwide English-speaking market, they can suffer from poor translation, which may make a game difficult to impossible to play if someone cannot reasonably decipher what the the designer was originally trying to say so just be aware of that if you're mm -hmm. buying games from publishers who are not within uh english speaking natively english speaking countries that you may run into this i'm sure that goes both ways though too oh <clears throat> sure absolutely um and I, I can't speak on any of those other rules that are translated into languages that are not English, but also not the languages native to to the country in which they're they're developed. Like turning German into Japanese, I imagine reading those rules is a very interesting experience for those Japanese uh, speaking and reading game players. Something um, that came up in a discussion when talking about playing games, uh, as a a uh, person who uh, relies on sighted assistance is, is that uh, an argument, counter-argument kind of went on, and it ultimately came down to this for, for the one person, that they felt that uh, relying on sighted assistance uh, as a means to learning to play games or, or what have you uh, could lead to uh, a situation where things are, are omitted. And so the, the omission of these things... Uh, is is such that it would influence the way that the blind or, or low vision player might play the game, the, the things they may choose to do. My response to this was that sighted players miss plenty of things when they play games all the time. Um, so my, my feeling on that is, um, and I don't want to go too far into this discussion because it could probably be its own addition uh, is that the, the the use of the tool, be it Braille or sighted assistance or whatever, come down to one's personal comfort level and preference. If you're choosing to use or not use one of these tools because you're worried about things like that, then I feel like you're worrying about nothing. 
um, that it's it's not something that's going to be exclusive to you being a blind or low vision player. It's it's something that afflicts all game players at some point in their gaming career, especially as they approach uh, a new game, either to teach it or to be taught it. Uh, you can't. I wouldn't expect that the that everyone will know everything that you will learn everything about a game even the strategies first go around that's the whole point of playing these games is to explore the experience mm-hmm. with other people absolutely that's what i get my joy from when i play that's all i really wanted to say uh about that uh, it's it it's just one of those things that um can maybe divide people over whether or not uh, they rely on some sort of sighted assistance or or not when it comes to playing these games, learning these games, um, and what sort of challenges there might be in 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 doing so. Yeah, I think for me personally, I often don't plan on winning, you know, the first couple times because of vision. And I know that sounds crazy, but people are going to uh, be able to see things a little bit better. And even though I have really cool friends who explain everything to me, I will just write a game off uh, until I learn it better as, okay, this is just learning. I mean, just learning in general, sighted or not, is part of the fun. But uh, I often will take myself a notch down in terms of expectations for being competitive in that, at least that first game. So uh, you're so you're not afflicted with beginner's luck? <laughs> well, sometimes. But I, generally speaking, I lower my expectation. And this is not some emo navel-gazing kind of thing. It's just like... Well, these are the realistic realistic expectations, and if I exceed that, well, great. And if not, okay, then I'll try better next time, and I have fun doing it. Winning for the first time is great. Uh, some people may like a game more because they've won. Me, I've disliked a game more because, not because I didn't win, but because I didn't win and the game wasn't working. Right. Um, if I had won and the game wasn't working, I'd be like, okay, clearly there's more work to be done here, but there's something to be enjoyed, and I can actually compete at this. Um, in, in the past, it's funny, uh, I would win first first time around a lot, um, and it might be first time for all of us, but it, it'd be one of those beginner's luck thing. Could I win again not for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that was a situation where I would figure out some of the effective strategies early, and, and that would lead to me winning the game. But after that, everyone else is seeing what I did and what they could be doing, and now suddenly I've got to bring more A game if I want to have a hope <laughs> of winning any future games. But um, it, at that point, I'm, I'm hooked in a lot of cases that I'll, I'll keep sure. playing whether I, I win or or lose um and if anything i think that's a a hallmark of a good game is if you can still come back to it even say let's play again even though you keep losing uh worse luck you're playing a cooperative game and you keep losing (laughs) absolutely well i I don't have it any longer but uh there's a game called galaxy trucker where you take little tiles off the board hidden and then you turn them over and you build a spaceship tile by tile and the fun part of that game is at the end when everyone has their ships built, all kinds of stuff comes at, at the ship to destroy it, to uh, hit it, to, to do whatever. Uh, and I never won that game. I literally never won that game because of my visual issues, but I loved playing it anyway. Uh, and that was just a good time. And that that's one of those where, you know, it's just a fun, fun good time, even if you, ne- you know you're never going to win. 
my, one of my old gaming groups almost picked up a copy of Galaxy Trucker, uh, but after we took a look at how the game was played, I think we watched uh, uh, a Dice Tower video on it at the time, and we had to step away from it because it just wasn't going to work for me, mm-hmm. and we weren't sure if the person buying the game was ever going to get it to the table. They liked the concept, and I liked the concept too. Like You just build this wacky, crazy spaceship from parts. You know it's not going to survive. That's half the fun about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that whole having to quickly look at a pile of random tiles and just dart in and grab uh, what you think you're going to need on a timer, the game uses a sand timer, uh, although you can use a timer app as well. That just that just wasn't going to appeal to me. Now, if there's a way to adapt the iPad mechanism that they use for the Galaxy Trucker uh, iPad game app uh, to the game board, then that might actually make it work. They they don't use a real time timer system in that game, as I understand it. It's a I think it's a points based system. You take something if you want it. Uh, if you don't want it, you I think you lose a point or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but it was a non real time means of selecting what you need. Ah, I haven't um, explored the app yet. Uh, well. Maybe we will, in another edition, be able to explore uh, game apps in more detail as well. I'd really like to get down to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a situation where, as I talked about earlier, adjusting a mechanism via a house rule, or in this case, something that's sort of semi-official, because the, the iPad app is officially supported by the publisher. Um, if adjusting that for a game would actually take it from being a non-starter into a playable game, then that's, that's just one of the kinds of things I might consider when it comes to gameplay. So I don't know that I have a lot more that I can say about... Uh, teaching games or, or introducing games from from the teaching end. Do you have any further thoughts, Brian? Uh, I think just kind of in repetition of what we said at the top of the uh, top of the show about giving objectives and 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 just a straight run through in brief executive summary form. Uh, that's very helpful just in general for sighted and non sighted players. Uh, for me, as a uh, poor vision person. Uh, I do want to know what the contrast is on cards and game boards and even components. Uh, there are some dubious games that make uh, purple and red look to, you know, close together, too close together for me to see, or a faded yellow next to a white is really hard. Um, but the biggest culprit for me is poor contrast and uh, graphic design nightmare people who design stuff like brown, light brown on brown, darker brown uh, to make it look old. Those kinds of things, they are just killers. Uh, for me, but I have I have good friends who don't know what I see, but they're guessing, and they'll say, "Ah, oh, Brian, you might have trouble, uh, you know, playing this game here. Let me show you something in the game, and we'll do a quick sample, and then I'll just I'll say, well, I'll try, or there's no way I can play that game. So for a uh, partially sighted person, that's an important uh, important thing to both uh, both learn the game and if if I'm going to even play it, let alone teach it. Uh, but as far as teaching. Uh, it depends on your audience. Like I said, if you're if you're teaching uh, with no one else with visual issues and you can play and teach it, it's a non-issue. Uh, but know your audience uh, and, and and figure out what they they can uh, what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. 
Uh, I think there's a situation there, Brian, where you may discover that you know more persons with color blindness than you thought you did. Um, it's it's one of those things that is uh, is a big thing, and game designers are taking note of this. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's universal, but there's certainly a lot more awareness about color difference, color uh, mm-hmm. uh color perception out there and so more games are being double coded which means having both a color and a shape yes. that that go together or where they use a pattern instead of a color things like that mm-hmm. um or they're just flat out choosing uh better contrasts or or where you're looking at player colors the colors contrast more strongly with each other unfortunately there are certain companies that i probably shouldn't name because Mm-mm. hasbro isn't in the room that still hey, hey. produce games with poor color contrasts in their game pieces and they just they haven't gotten the memo yet but otherwise um i i think for for those who are colorblind and it's more likely you're going to get someone like that in your mix group than a bunch of people who are blind or or with low vision that it is good to keep in mind whether a game you're teaching even if you're blind uh whether or not it has those sorts of good or bad color contrasts and color separations and things like that that are going to make that game work for those people. Yeah, I, I would just want to say, uh, I didn't say that, so any litigation sent to Ryan Peach? Uh, can be forwarded to uh, heymondo at gmail.com. That's my email. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think we're done here. We can move on to the part three. We've been talking about games off and on throughout the show. Let's get down to really talking about some games that we think work to be taught and for us to be taught and ones that don't for some reason or another. How how does that sound, Brian? Sounds good. All right. We're going to be back in a minute. Stick around. Okay, and so we're back. This is the third and final part of the Touch of Gaming podcast edition. And now we're going to get into probably our our favorite part, which is uh, talk and shop about games. And in this case, we're talking about games that we feel work really well or don't work really well uh, as games uh, that that we want to teach uh, or be taught. Um, did you want to start, Brian? Uh, sure. I think... I'm going to be speaking more in generalities instead of specific games. Uh, as we've said before, beating the dead horse, make sure you do the basics, you know, those basic steps when you're explaining a game. Uh, for me, if I'm going to explain a new game to people that I don't know what their gaming tastes are, um, I will take a simpler game, something like No Thanks. Uh, it's got a deck of cards, and it's got some chips, and that's it. Uh, the reason it's easy to explain is there's numbers on the cards, and you got the chips, you can explain the rules, and you can get be, you know, in and done and play the game. Uh, if you want to go deeper, uh, once you have these, these folks in, in a group or at the table for a session, you can certainly go to more complex games, but this goes back to the idea of starting off simple. Uh, but I think just as a general rule, you don't want to throw out something like Terra Mystica on the table, and I'm not picking on that game, it's a decent game. Uh, but you don't want to start with that because of its complexity 
and all those kinds of issues that we've already talked about. So as far as a good game, I would do something like that. Uh, another game that I have paused to, especially as a limited vision person, was uh, the original Age of Empires. It's retitled, it's getting republished, and all that kind of stuff. But that was visually overwhelming for me because this is a uh, slightly dubious thing of this congested map, old world map with browns on browns and the territories all mished and mashed together such to the point where I took a black sharpie to it to delineate territories. So even as a sighted person, I wouldn't throw that game out at the, uh, on the table to a group of new folks because it's, it's complex. It's not, once you play it, it all makes sense, but I wouldn't necessarily want to explain, okay, this goes here, this goes there. Oh, these pieces are different because of this, blah, blah, blah. I would reserve that for a group of people that you've played games with for a while. Um, and so I would avoid explaining or teaching that game right off the get-go. So I would start simpler, even in, either, even in a session, I'd start simpler and then gravitate towards the heavier ones unless you're playing with people you know. So you're thinking of maybe starting off with a game that introduces one mechanic uh, or mechanism that you maybe have uh, available in a more advanced game and sort of ramp the players up over time to games that use the same mechanism but then add an additional mechanism um, and so on. So that way they're they're not just being overwhelmed by all of the different things that sure. uh, they've never been exposed to? I would say that, yeah. And, and I, I think... As a, as the veteran gamers that we can be, I think it's kind of your call as to as to know, okay, is this going to work for new people or not? Um, if you've played with the same guys for years, you, you know them, so you can start off with a more complex game. But if you're going to a gaming store uh, and you don't know people or you've invited newer people to the group, I would always default by playing the simpler, lighter stuff first and then kind of acquiescing into uh, or getting to know them better, I should say. Yeah, and that's that's a very fair. How what you choose to play, uh, even what you choose to buy for your own collection, can be very much moderated by the the people that you play games regularly with. Uh, just to add to what you're saying about Age of Empires, which is uh, officially referred to as Age of Empires Three. Which was a title that used the Microsoft uh, PC Games license for a time. That game is now back in print as Empires. Age of Discovery. It is in a deluxe printing, which includes the expansion that came out for it. It's in a big, giant box. The components are a lot more detailed and distinctive. Uh, the board has been redone. Uh, some don't like the board. They say it's more functional. Um, I'm guessing that means that they can more clearly see where they need to go and what they need to do, but they don't like the aesthetics of it as much as they did the original board. And maybe they felt the, the, the original board was more thematic. Uh, I don't have any personal opinion on that. Uh, I'm personally for games that are more functional than aesthetic. I think some graphic designers and, and game artists can go a little overboard in the, the thematic stylings that they put on the game boards or game cards, such that the things the players need to know can get obfuscated in a way that I think you have personally experienced on a number of occasions when, say, looking at game cards or player boards, trying to find out where the scoring spaces are or the action spaces or what have you. Yeah, and I would just add um, to a slight complaint here. Um, this is a continual annoyance for me. It's when 
cards are made, and I know that the uh, publishers pay a lot for the artwork. I respect that, but for goodness sake, if you're going to make a card, don't make the artwork two-thirds of the card and the symbols that matter being really tiny or of poor contrast. And then if you add flavor text on top of that, in addition to any rules, oh, that just drives us lesser-sighted people crazy. And And it's not just me who's legally blind. There are people who are aging uh, as part of one of my gaming groups that are, you know, in their 50s and, and 60s and stuff. They just have a harder time seeing this stuff, and it drives them crazy to not have contrast and have big artwork. Whenever you do looks over functionality, that's a problem for a lot of people. Mm. I know I, I, I took a bit of heat for liking one of the games that I like because I wasn't aware of how plain and bland the game uh, the game board in particular was, and, and that's the cooperative fantasy-themed dice-chucking game, Defenders of the Realm. It is still a favorite game of mine, but uh, a lot of people have mocked it because the, the where, where you can go overboard with graphic design, when you look at the game board, apparently graphic design is almost non-existent. <laughs> well, see, it, it is funny because it, it, I do like some good graphics and some good artwork for sure, even as a limited vision person. But I don't mind. St- I don't mind just playing text. I mean, I I made my own version of a game that was really. I'm not going to mention it. I made my own game uh, version of a game that was really hard to find and only released in other countries for a long, long time. Very popular, and I made 300 cards on my own in large text, black and white text, courier new font in as large of a font as the cards could take, printed them out, cut them all, and put them all in sleeves. I didn't mind that at all, because you know what? The artwork is irrelevant, especially in that game, uh, because it's more of a mind game than anything else. So it depends on the game, but I understand what you're saying. Well, I, I'm not bothered either way, and my game group for the longest time wasn't bothered either. was a little embarrassing, though, to... to uh have people point out to me that this this game had this this sort of lacking of of a good theming in in the art and graphic design um and and that people have chosen to trade the game away as a result of it uh maybe a new edition will come along and they'll fix this i've heard that uh there are fan made board skins that you can print out and apply that have been <laughs> done better not sure how or if or when i'll go that extra mile for 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 this game but that's something that that's a topic all into its own that we sure. may cover in a, a future edition um, just a little story uh, that ties into uh, what we're talking about here is games that, that work well for being taught and not being taught. This is a story about mis- mischaracterizing a game, miss, uh, uh, miss something about the game. We'll just go with that. I, it was not as good a choice as... I thought it was going to be, and this is where I think my personal experience with the game got ahead of reality. Uh, and it goes a little bit like this. Uh, when I attended the Falcon Gaming Convention in 2014 uh, up here in Calgary, 
for one of the first games that I put on the table out of a bag full of games I brought with me, I put Dungeon Lords on the table. Now, Dungeon Lords is where uh, up to four players are playing uh, as their own personal little overlord, where they get to build up a dungeon and populate it with creatures and and set up nasty traps, so that way when the hapless band of heroes comes along and decides they want to stop you, you're all in the business of capturing them and ultimately it's about scoring points and being the player with the most points based on titles and things like that. This is a game that when everyone knows what's going on, even with four players, it maybe takes two hours, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I try to include setup and teardown, so maybe three hours if you if you go with everything. Uh, and this is a game that I usually, I can teach usually. And... Um, the setup is very easy. This is a game that is very friendly from the components side. It's all distinctive components. Player boards are, are easy to navigate yourself. Uh, there is no, there is a central board, but, uh, it, it's, it's very straightforward. Anyway, I thought based on my experience that this would be the, a great game to introduce people to. No. First off, I did not know the game as well as I thought I did. There, When I was originally taught the game, there were a lot of things that were left out. The game is very heavy on symbologies. Now, the rule book is very good about uh, referencing those symbols, explaining uh, in de- depth what different things are. So if you don't know, the rules are very friendly that way. It doesn't take very long for you to find what you need and to move on. But I didn't know about a lot of the stuff. So we're setting up the game. Ultimately, we had to pull one of the ambassadors in to teach the game to the group. Um, This is a situation where I knew the game well enough to play it once we got down to the business of playing it, but I did not apparently know it well enough to teach. And it was because of all of the symbology. In the end, it took us an hour to set up and play the game and then another three hours to play through the first of two years uh, worth of gameplay. At that point, we decided to end it. Um, one, of the, one of the people in the group, he said he liked the game um, and he came back and we played other games later and stuff. But I didn't, the, the other group, I'm really not sure how well it was received. And what I learned from that was I need to be more solid on the games that I think I know well enough to teach before I put something like this down on the table. And Dungeon Lords, despite the friendliness of the components and the ease of setup, um, is very deceptive when it comes to first-time gameplay. It has a far higher learning curve for introductory gameplay than I thought it would. Now, there is an an introductory level to the game. Basically, it's on the backside of the player boards, and there's sort of like a tutorial rules that sort of walk you through this. Had I been thinking, I would have considered introducing these new players mm-hmm. to the game through that, since it, it, it simplifies and truncates a lot of things uh, about how the game is played. But... Again, it was my experience with the game. I had moved on from the tutorial, um, and I thought, okay, this game isn't that much more involved when you get into the real game than the tutorial. How hard could it be? Uh, I think I learned my lesson on that one. That being said, in future, I've introduced Dungeon Lords to players, and they were hooked. Uh, 
we we still have yet to play through a complete game in one group and we we started it twice we started it twice we almost got to the end in our first game but we had to go because the store was closing so we couldn't finish the last of that and then the second one we only got halfway through because it was getting too late for some people but Here's the thing, and I this is where I say hallmark of a great game, and it's one of my all-time top favorite games. Despite all that, they wanted to play it again. They wanted more. And since I introduced the festival season expansion components, they only want to play with those components now. So that's a game where once you get past that, that steep hill... Uh, at the very beginning, it levels out into into a, a vast, beautiful garden of gaming awesome. So that's that that's Dungeon Lords. It's 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 not an absolute best. It's not an absolute worst. It's a proceed with caution kind of game. Wow, that's a heck of a free plug there you just gave, Ryan. <laughs> oh, I could go on, but I won't. I I want to hear more games from you. Or, um, I do have another game I could mention. Go for it. All right. This is a game that I definitely think um, is worth introducing to a new group. It doesn't introduce a lot of new elements. Um, I can teach it completely without the rulebook. Um, I can set it up almost completely without the rulebook as well. And that is Alien Frontiers. Another one of my all-time top favorite games. It's very fast and easy to set up and tear down. Um, You can seat up to six players when you include the expansions. uh, Although I haven't gotten up to... Do not play that with six. I have done it with six. And it was very cutthroaty. Very cutthroaty. It was fun. It was actually the most fun game of that that i had played with was with six people but i hadn't played we we did not include some of the expansion components it was basically just the base game and that was because um at least half of the people at the table had never played the game at all before um it works well because it has dice chucking i mean who can refuse dice chucking um the the concept of taking your dice and placing them on uh, facilities uh, where the dice match up, maybe it's uh, pairs or it's uh, a run or it's the highest die of all the ones that are already there, stuff like that. These are things that are, I think are, are easy enough concepts for people to grasp. And beyond that, it's really about swapping in resources to, to get more dice, to put your little colony markers on the player board. Uh, people, a lot of people are familiar with the concept of area control via games like Risk and Axis and Allies. With something like Alien Frontiers, you have area majority, where the player with the most of their pieces on a space gets the special bonus, gets the victory point, um, but the other players' uh, colony tokens are not removed. They have an opportunity to add their more of their own and take control back. And it's all towards the end of having the most victory points when the game ends. And like Jamaica, the player who ends the game is not necessarily the player who wins. It's only the person with the most victory points. Um, and so that's a game that I often have in my go bag because I find it... it the space theme might not make it approachable for some people, but I find that the actual gameplay, I think, is very approachable. Kingsburg is to fantasy what Alien Frontiers is to space. They're both dice chuckers, and you allocate dice to certain spots on the board that gives you 
stuff to build other stuff or get some kind of advantage. And uh, that's, a, that's a great game, too. I think the as far as teaching, the I will not play Kingsburg without the expansion. And now that I've got the expansions for one of the expansions uh, factions for Alien Frontiers, those are games I will not play without those expansions because I think they change the game in, in very good ways. And I don't want to go back to the original game. But then again, if you're teaching it, do you involve those extra bits or not? I think for those particular games, I think the Kingsburg one with the, with the big board in particular is easier just to teach new players to. Maybe the factions you might want to hold off on on teaching that to new players right off the get-go. But if they're smart and they've got a little bit of gaming experience, you might throw them in there uh, into the factions as well. Uh, I I agree. I have included the To Forge Realm expansion with Kingsburg from the outset with new players because I don't find that it does... It adds more of the same. It does not change the game enough, and you don't have to play with everything the expansion includes. You just go with what the players are comfortable with uh, or what works for you. There's there's one module where players have a hand of cards. That's one that I, I... haven't played i can't play so i don't i don't miss not having it mm-hmm. um maybe i'll devise a way to make that playable via a house rule at some point but until then kingsburg without the the card hand is still very fun very strategic i will say though that there is a higher learning curve to Kingsburg than Alien Frontiers because Kingsburg relies a lot more on the symbology that they use on the board sure. and what have you. Now, the rule book is very friendly about providing uh, reference for those symbols. The the pictures in the books match the, the pictures on the boards and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so um, for me, I found that 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 works eventually. And once you sort of go through the step-by-step for the first year, it's basically lather, rinse, repeat for the remaining four years of the game. Um, and the gameplay just gets faster and faster. Sure. But, we're, but that's where it differs from Alien Frontiers in that um, I, I feel that players can get right into making meaningful decisions and knowing what's going on and, and how to do things with Alien Frontiers right from the outset. It's not bogged down with all of this uh, symbology shortcut stuff that games like Dungeon Lords and Kingsburg have going for them. Um, I, I like both games. Um, I think I have Alien Frontiers higher in my personal all-time uh, list, though they're they're both on it. For, for all of these sorts of reasons, I will add one caveat for Kingsburg. In, in the, the game itself, for the resources that you can collect, the three different resources, they're all colored cubes. All the same size, they're different colors. If you have low vision, that's fine. Um, and when I had low vision and played the game, that was fine. But... As a blind player, you're going to want to replace those cubes with something. Mm-hmm. Either different shaped wooden pieces. In my case, I actually got a product called the Stonebuyer Games Treasure Chest 1, since there are more of them now, which has metal and resin resource tokens in different shapes. So I took the gold, the stone, and the wood cubes out of the game entirely and replace them with metal, little metal gold bars, uh, little wooden logs, and stone chunks from this treasure chest. And that just upped the accessibility so much more 
with those in there. You can tell them easily apart from each other. Those are the sorts of things you may have to do to make a game work. I think that ties into our the theme of our podcast, A Touch of Gaming. And, and another nice free plug for, from Ryan here. Oh, yes. Um, I... Uh, I, I may be waiting a while for those uh, uh, commission checks to roll in, but... Uh, <laughs> you I know, wouldn't count on any of them, Ryan, but, but let's continue. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay, what other games do you have, Ryan? Um, I think, like I mentioned before, um, those are the general uh, rules of uh, just simple simple examples of you know what to, what to teach on the first get-go and, and what not to. Um, I think you can apply those those same rules in any number of games. The simpler, like another one that's easy to teach is Timeline. Uh, that's a simple game where you have on one side of the card uh, an event or a song or a movie or an invention, those kinds of things. And on the other side is the actual year date. You set these up on the board, and then you have to figure out the card that you're putting down, where on the timeline it is. If you're if you su- successfully put it between the two dates that uh, that they go between, then you keep the card on the board and first player out wins. That's the entire game. Now, this is not going to work for uh, completely blind players, but it can work for uh, visually impaired people like myself, especially if I play a card and I can, I, with a visual assistance, I can read the event uh, on the one side, and then I will actually just point on the board and people will read off the year numbers for me, and then I can discern where I think it goes, and then I'll place it down and flip. And that works well for for us partially sighted folks. So that's another one that I find easy to teach, just because it's simple, uh, and it can be it can it can be uh, easy for visually limited people to play. As an aside, that is that that leads into one of the ways that uh, it works out for me. I will not play a game if I have to give up any of my agency as a player in order to play that game. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, other players moving or placing my pieces on a game board or managing my resources for me. Though the more I can do of that myself, the better. It's about choices. And as long as I'm the one who gets who makes the choices, then... I'm personally okay with ceding some actual physical control over gameplay elements to the players providing the sighted assistance. So, I mean, as an example, where you're saying in timeline, the sighted or more sighted player in your case would be reading out the numbers and you decide what you're going to do, it would function exactly the same way for me in games that, that use that sort of method. I would be asking questions or the players would be giving out the information, then I would I would make my decision based on that. Now, sure, maybe players forget to tell me about something, and so I couldn't make a fully informed choice. But as I said before, it's not like sighted players see and know everything all the time either. So I don't. I wouldn't take that sort of thing personally. I wouldn't say it has come up very often, to be honest. Um, well, so, I think in timeline, the the sighted players could read the cards for you. It would just mean everyone knew what you had. But in that game, that's kind of irrelevant anyway, if that makes sense. I know there are games that I played where, where players have hidden hands, uh, such as in a lot of drafting games, and I felt very much the same way. I've, I've had conversations with uh, uh, other podcasters online about 
this this notion of whether it matters whether or not other players know what you have, what, whether it actually represents an, a disadvantage for you or an advantage for them or not. And and I've commented that I felt like in games like Among the Stars, which uh, which, which we have mentioned at some point, uh, another great game to teach. Um, with a game like that, having someone read my cards to me after everyone else has chosen their card, sure, everyone else knows what's in my hand, and the player who's going to benefit most from knowing that is the player I'd be passing my hand to, but there's not a thing they can do about it. Right. Uh, they Everyone has chosen their cards. They can't change them. If they're honest, they're not changing it. I choose my, well, one would I, hope. <laughs> I choose my card, then I reveal, and everyone else reveals, the hands get passed and we move on. Um, now, by the time, say, the player who would get my hand last gets my hand, sure, they may have known all of what was in my hand, but the hand they're going to get is significantly reduced, and cards they may have wanted... They, it, they, it's it's harder to plan for with more players because fewer cards are going to come around to you from from my hand once it gets there, and you don't have any influence over what other players take either. So that's a situation where I feel like the whole idea of of a hidden hand is is irrelevant. It's a non-issue, and I have approached games like that with the same sort of attitude where. Where, sure, having a hand means that people aren't supposed to know what you have, but whether or not they know you have something doesn't really, can't really, doesn't really affect what they do. Well, one could argue that the player two or three down the line may look at his hand, his or her hand, and say, ooh, that card that I might get could combo, make some kind of combination with what I might pick here, but... But, 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 I wouldn't pay much attention to that if, if someone's that competitive. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're hoping just as much as any other player around the table for something that the previous players may choose for themselves. No. Um, so even, even knowing this stuff makes it difficult to plan for. And interestingly enough, in a game like Among the Stars, with this uh, revival expansion that's uh, hitting the market... They have changed the drafting mechanism from a hand-based draft to a pool-based draft, which, as I understand, I think it will scale up to to a larger group of players. When looking through the rules, it looked like it was only intended for the two-player game, but they didn't say that you couldn't use it in a three, four, five, six-player game. Hmm. Um. I think that that method could make that game go faster, and I think it sort of expresses my point about how unimportant it is for other players to know what other cards players may not have available. Um, sure. On a related subject, I will mention one game that I think is is uh, very teachable, very easy game to get into in the vein of Among the Stars. I did not intend this as a segue, I swear, and that is Seven Wonders. Uh, I, I think it is even more approachable. It has the same sort of mechanisms. 
uh, as among the stars, it is older, and some of the mechanisms that Among the Stars uses were inspired by Seven Wonders. So if you played one, you can probably jump right into the other with with uh, with little trouble, but they play differently enough from each other that you can have both games on the shelf. As a game to be taught, um, I, I found it uh, very approachable. I learned via a video, so maybe that's cheating, maybe not... Um, it was a very good video, um, and from that video, I then taught our group. Um, so I felt as a game that I've only played a few times that it's very easy to conceptualize. The setup is fast, straightforward, a lot more straightforward than Among the Stars, though my feeling is that Among the Stars provides a lot more um, variety, sure. uh, especially with the expansions. But in any case, um, I, I absolutely think that if you're looking at something to introduce to a group with less experience, where you want to introduce them to the drafting mechanism, you want to introduce them to the concept of civilization building, you, you can hardly go wrong with something like Seven Wonders. Um, I don't think there are too many other civilization building games that you could really slot into that uh, at least not that I've played as yet. No, sounds good. Hey, we're running a little long on time. We should probably wrap this up. All right. I think this has been a great conversation, Brian. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to uh, the Touch of Gaming podcast for this edition. And we hope to see you around for the next edition of A Touch of Gaming. Keep in mind to reach out, take hold, Go beyond. Bye for now.